This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Coming up on Stu Does America. It's tough to get a clear idea of what's actually happening in the election right now with all the media's garbage clogging up our news feeds. So we'll cut to the chase with National Review's Dan McLaughlin. And what do you do when you're a star football player who sucks at playing football? Load up on social causes, of course. We'll tell you what Colin Kaepernick is into this week. Thank you so much for continuing to watch and listen to our show. Uh, you know, look, tell your friends that they can find us on YouTube, Facebook, podcast, uh, really, I mean, Pluto TV. Go ahead, uh, just go to studosamerica.com. You can find links for everything right there. Or get the super deluxe package when you subscribe to Blaze TV today. Head to blazetv.com slash stew and be sure to use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 30 bucks. When I think of good, clean American politics, I naturally think of Obama's former chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, right? You with me? Who's with me? However, it seems a few on the left are a little wary of him joining Biden's team. So what's the next best thing? Let's take a look and do Rahm's brother, Ezekiel Emanuel. Stu does America. Remember the television show Full House? the cheesy and heartwarming 80s and 90s sitcom. Do you remember that it all started with a dead mom? Mm -hmm. It's true. Ran for eight seasons back in the day on a storyline about a dead mom. Mm. Then Netflix announced Fuller House. Get it? Because it's Full House and now it's Fuller House, right? It's a sequel to the series, which follows the kids now as parents. I didn't love the original Full House, I have to say. And I really didn't need it to come back into my life. Which brings us to Ezekiel Emanuel. I didn't love him the first time, and I really don't need him back in my life. You may remember Ezekiel Emanuel for a few things during the Obama administration. He was the brother of Rahm Emanuel, Obama's first chief of staff. He was one of the original architects of Obamacare, a plan so terrible that every Republican candidate wants to repeal it and every Democratic candidate promised to radically alter it or scrap it completely. And Zeke was also famous for a 2009 paper he wrote on the complete lives system. It showed at what age a parent would have a probability of receiving an intervention. Look at the chart basically indicates uh, how much value your life is worth. If it's worth a little, we don't try very hard to save you. If it's worth a lot, we'll try our very bestest. Very early on, you have almost no value as a human being. But what do you expect? He's a Democrat. Of course he thinks babies are trash. Once you get into your late teens, you reach peak value. An interesting admission from Zeke. I'm just saying, if you have a teenage daughter and she's getting text messages from Zeke Emanuel explaining how she's at her peak value, become Amish and run away from your phones. As a person gets older, their value slowly goes down until the late 50s, and then you basically run out of value completely. Nice message to convey to seniors. I hope you're happy you voted for Biden, Aunt Myrna. 
Why? Because Ezekiel Emanuel is inexplicably part of a task force Joe Biden is building to create options for a COVID-19 response. Now, Ezekiel Emanuel also became infamous again in 2014 for an article he wrote for The Atlantic entitled Why I Hope to Die at 75. Doesn't take a genius to realize that Joe Biden's 75th birthday came during Trump's first year in office. So Ezekiel Emanuel hopes he is dead before the age that Joe Biden even started running for president. It's a bit awkward. But it's more than that. Ezekiel Emanuel is not an epidemiologist, but he has a lot of relevant experience. He is basically obsessed with figuring out how to distribute medical care in the best way possible. And he's made a very, very, very clear point over and over again that the best way possible is to not give it to old people. So now he's tasked with how to distribute a vaccine for a virus that is killing primarily old people. Why else would you bring him on the team for this project unless you wanted to take his advice and withhold treatment to seniors? Now, that sounds over the top, I, I grant you. But let me lay this out for a second. Take a look at the complete live system chart again. You start your life with a little value. You peak around your late teens, I, I guess because Ezekiel Emanuel really likes teenagers. Don't let him be a chaperone at your kid's high school. Just saying. And then your value kind of as a human being drops, drops and drops and drops and drops. If you see on the left of this chart, uh, the, uh, you see probability of receiving an intervention. An intervention in this context is treatment. It's medical resources. It's a vaccine. He's talking about intervening in the process of an illness. When you're old, he's arguing that we should not intervene when you get sick. And take note on the chart. As you run out and you get kind of older, you lose value and you lose value and eventually have barely any value. And then the chart ends. At 75 years old, Joe Biden doesn't even make it on the chart. And if you're a senior or your parents are over 75, you don't make it on the chart either. And I'll give him one thing. At least he's consistent. If you're over 75, you're not on the chart. And that's the same age Ezekiel Emanuel says he wants to die. In his piece for The Atlantic, written in 2014, he outlines what his vision of life at 75 should be like. Quote, after 75, if I develop cancer, I will refuse treatment. Similarly, no cardiac stress test, no pacemaker, and certainly no implantable defibrillator, which is just a fun word to say. No heart valve replacement or bypass surgery. If I develop emphysema or some similar disease that involves frequent exacerbations that would normally land me in the hospital, I will accept treatment to ameliorate the discomfort caused by the feeling of suffocation, but will refuse to be hauled off. He's not completely alone in this, I suppose. A lot of people refuse treatment when things get really rough late in life. That's sort of normal. But he's arguing for avoiding even a cardiac stress test. And it's not just serious ailments like this. He talks about not even getting a flu shot because his life would be of such little value that it would be better to not use the resources. And he even talked about what should be done with old people in a flu-style pandemic, quote, what about simple stuff? Flu shots are out. 
Certainly, if there were to be a flu pandemic, a younger person who is yet, who has yet to live a complete life ought to get the vaccine or any antiviral drugs. I mean, he's being straight up about this. You know, look to Ezekiel Emanuel, Soylent Green is people. You know, that's just the way he's kind of thinking about things. But it's even more extreme than this. This dude doesn't even think seniors should even get antibiotics. Antibiotics are cheap and largely effective in curing infections. It is really hard for us to say no. Indeed, even people who are sure they don't want life uh, extending treatments find it hard to refuse antibiotics. But as Sir William Osler, uh, author of an old medical textbook, reminds us, unlike the decays associated with chronic conditions, death from these infections is quick and relatively painless. So no to antibiotics. What the hell is this? Is this America? Emmanuel goes on to tell you how extreme this viewpoint is. Once he hits the arbitrary age of 75, literally don't do anything to extend his life. Quote, in short, no life-sustaining interventions. I will die when whatever comes first takes me. This is a horror show. Now, his column is filled with disclaimers about how this is what he wants. And it's not bad for you to want to live longer. He just thinks it's not a good idea overall and for him personally. Believe that if you want. But if you had a guy like this with these opinions, why would you put him on a task force designed specifically to deal with a virus that targets old people? People from 75 to 84 are 220 times as likely to die of COVID than the 18 to 29 year olds, according to the CDC. If you're 85 or older, you're 630 times as likely to die. And you're putting a guy on your task force who has made it his life's work to popularize the theory that life after 75 has no value. Are you completely insane? In Science Magazine, Emmanuel wrote that when, he, when we distribute vaccines, we must avoid, quote, vaccine nationalism. In other words, give it to other countries, even when people here still need it. Who should get it regardless of country or uh, of citizenship? Well, people who face premature death. That was his argument. People who face premature death. Well, guess what? According to the system, he proposes using no one who is 75 years or older can possibly face premature death. Consistent with all of his other writings on this subject, if you die over 75, it is never premature. According to Zeke, it's predetermined. Just a few months ago, Fuller House finished its series after five seasons following eight seasons in its initial run. I'm fine with not intervening in that death. See you later, Tanner family. But are we fine with that same approach with American citizens, moms, dads, grandpas, grandmas, World War II and Korean veterans? None of them have enough value to waste antibiotics on them, let alone a vaccine. This is not how America values its seniors. But apparently, despite his own age, it's exactly how Joe Biden values them. Let's say you happen to live with Ezekiel Emanuel and you're thinking to yourself, I got to get the hell out of this house. Looking for real estate in these times can be challenging. You got to find the best real estate agent possible if you're running away from someone who wants to unplug you even when you feel totally fine. Uh, you need to go to realestateagentsitrust.com. 
realestateagentsitrust.com is a website uh, that Glenn Beck built uh, because he had so many issues with his real estate agents. Look, when you're in radio, you move around about every 10 minutes. Seriously, I've probably moved 20 times since I started working with Glenn uh, back in the day. You just do it all the time. So you're used to dealing with real estate agents and it becomes a complete irritant in your life if it doesn't go well. Realestateagentsitrust.com does the vetting for you. Uh, They probably have a whole thing to filter out people who want to make sure you don't get antibiotics if you get sick. That's the way it works. I kind of realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go for more information. You're going to buy a house. You're going to sell a house. Get a real estate agent you can trust. Realestateagentsitrust.com. It's realestateagentsitrust.com. Happy to welcome back to the program Dan McLaughlin, senior writer for National Review. Dan, thanks for taking the time today. Glad to be here, Stu. Thanks. Um, You know, it's interesting. Before we get into all the stuff going on with the election and all of the questions about it, let's talk generally for a second. There's this narrative from the media that basically there's no such thing as election fraud. Election fraud never occurs. I mean, I guess unless Democrats win the election or lose the election, then 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 I hear a lot about it. But there's no there's no election fraud in any real numbers. Is that true? Generally speaking, Uh, generally speaking, no, although real numbers is really where the question comes in. Right. Um, I, I, I think when you're talking about. Uh, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of ballots, uh, it's extremely rare at this point in American history to see that in an election. Uh, You know, the last really enormous example of voter fraud that we had was the 1982 uh, governor's election in Illinois, where there were 100,000 fraudulent votes cast in Chicago. 100,000. And <laughs> that's, uh, that's, uh, that's quite a bit. And obviously, that would be sort of on the margins we're talking about here. How did they wind up catching this? Uh, well, I mean, at the time, it was extremely, it was just extremely open and notorious in Chicago that they were fairly arrogant about it. Um, but, I mean, there are, there are voter fraud convictions every year. Uh, and occasionally, there are still elections tossed out, uh, very rarely, uh, typically only when you're talking about margins in the hundreds. Um, I think it was about 900 votes that the... Uh, separated the last House race that was thrown out for fraud. It was actually a Republican who had won in North Carolina uh, in 2018. Um, So, you know, this is absolutely something that happens in the real world. But the minute you start getting into the thousands in terms of your margins of victory, uh, the chances of finding anything that's going to overturn that become extremely slim, let alone the you know, tens of thousands. One of the things I've been trying to think about this as we've gone through this from the last couple of weeks is not to look at the stuff that's just circulating on the Internet. There's tons of stuff on the Internet that's going around. Everyone's got a tweet. Everyone's got a theory. Everyone's got some way that this, you know, was, this election was swung. But to instead look at the actual campaign, who happens to have a billionaire candidate with basically unlimited resources, not to mention the RNC and everything else behind him, what are they actually filing themselves in court to try to challenge? Are we seeing a major, major difference between what's going on on the Internet and what's going into the courts? Yeah, there is. There's a big disconnect. Um, and that the disconnect is partly that, that there are some things being aired on the Internet that are basically conspiracy theories uh, about voting machines and things of that nature. Um, but even if you look at the lawsuits, they filed uh, something like, uh, I mean, I think they've had something like 26 court decisions so far in, in cases. Um, an awful lot of them are 
they're too small. Frankly, they're they're asking to change too little uh, to actually overturn the result. And the Trump campaign has essentially more or less abandoned Arizona, which is the state, the smallest margin of victory. Uh, they have very little that they can use in Wisconsin, uh, which is also fairly narrow. And so that means that they need to overturn the results in Georgia, uh, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And the, the total vote margin there, if you combine those three states, about 234,000 votes. That's, that's a big lift. Yeah, that's a big one. And why? Why did they abandon uh, Michigan and, uh, or excuse me, not Michigan, Wisconsin and Arizona? Because I, I think I thought the same thing. They they keep talking about Michigan as this big target and Pennsylvania. We're going to be looking at you know six figure vote totals likely in both of those states. Why are those the targets and not the close states like Arizona and Wisconsin? Uh, I mean, there's a variety of reasons. I mean, in in Pennsylvania, they have some legitimate cases. Uh, that predate the election, challenges to, you know, deadlines. And uh, I mean, these are not so much fraud theories as simply saying you're counting votes that you shouldn't count because they, you know, they, they arrived on, didn't arrive on time or because somebody was allowed to cure a ballot defect that they shouldn't have been allowed to. Uh, I mean, at a, at a more, you know, gut level, the fact is that I mean, in Arizona in particular, you know, I mean, the, the margin of victory is mainly in Maricopa County, which is, uh, you know, largely a Republican uh, area. Trump actually carried it last time around. I mean, Georgia, the, the state elections, uh, you know, there are certainly local Democratic officials, particularly in, in Fulton County around Atlanta. Uh, but, you know, the state secretary of state is a Republican. Uh, so I think there's part of the part of where they're choosing to challenge is based on where they think there might be vulnerabilities to the vote totals and where there are large electoral vote stakes. But I think that that puts them at the disadvantage of having to try to overturn elections that are decided by a fairly large number of votes. And Pennsylvania is a, still a small percentage of the vote dividing the two candidates, about 1%. But, you know, that's it's like 75, 85,000 votes. It's a lot of votes. Yeah. Um, th there's been several times we've seen cases that the Trump uh, campaign has brought and then has seemingly either withdrawn them or adjusted them on the fly to, to change the, uh, you know, important elements of that. Can you kind of discuss what went on with those cases? Yeah. And, and this is I mean, frankly, this is responsible lawyering. Uh, you know, obviously, you can argue that maybe some of these theories shouldn't have been included originally. But, um, you know, I mean, this is what you do in a case, particularly because these are fast moving cases. So lawyers often have to file them uh, without getting to do maybe the the depth of pre lawsuit investigation that you would do in a case that, you know, was not moving quite as fast. And, and yeah, lawyers have to deal with that all the time. You still have to be responsible about what you file. But because these are moving fast, you know, as, as evidence comes out, as they dive further into the facts, uh, or as legal rulings go against them, uh, you know, they may decide that some theories that maybe looked promising at first, you know, a week later, they don't look so great. Uh, have we, we've seen a couple of, of these bigger law firms working with the Trump campaign drop out of some of these bigger cases. Is that, I've heard, you know, you hear sometimes that that's just because the cases aren't good and they don't want to be involved in them. You also hear that they're getting lots of pressure from outside groups to not work with the Trump campaign. Do we have any concept of, of why they're doing this? 
It's 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 hard from the outside to tell. Uh, I mean, there are two completely reasonable explanations for a law firm dropping out of these. On the one hand, is the possibility that you know they're being put under public pressure. They've got left wingers giving out their phone numbers to have people call and yell at them and maybe make threats. They may also be under business pressure. Some of their clients may say, oh, I don't want you representing Trump. The other alternative is that Donald Trump can be a very difficult client. Uh, he may be asking them to do things they no longer feel comfortable with. They may file lawsuits and then look at it and say, you know what, I can't continue with this. And Trump then has to say, well, I'll find a lawyer at will. So it's it's hard from the outside to tell what's motivating some of those decisions. And when you look at some of these, because you'd really need for this for the election result to be overturned, you would need something large and systemic. And I think that's why people are attaching themselves to some of these like, you know, internal sort of computer uh, software type of uh, things on the Internet, which is hard, very difficult to prove. Uh, unfalsifiable probably is the is the right word for it. Uh, you can't really prove that votes weren't switched. It's almost impossible. But when you talk about something that big, there seems to be a limitation in the system to be able to challenge it, even if it were true. Like, how is there? I mean, that's the argument I get a lot from people who say, look, we want to look into this, but we've got two weeks until they're certifying these results. There's no possible way to do it. Is that's just a limitation on our system that we have to just learn to live with? Uh, yes and no. I mean, and, and, and this goes into the argument that, that goes on between elections about what systems we should have and whether they should be more track, trackable. Uh, I mean, look, I think the Dominion voting system, the whole reason that people are up in arms about it is because it actually did make a mistake in Michigan uh, in one county, uh, and it was discovered almost immediately. So, uh, you know, in situations of that nature, it, there are sometimes paper trails you can check. You could do a hand recount of ballots that were tabulated by machines. You know, it varies based on how the, how, on the state and the, the kind of system you're dealing with. Um, I think long term, it makes sense to have, uh, you know, paper ballots that you can that you can keep track of uh, and not have to depend entirely on a machine so that if there is a controversy later on about a machine, you can you can count it more easily. What I think is harder in terms of falsifiability uh, is some of the concerns about mail in voting. Right. And, and, and the concern that people have is that a ballot was filled out, you know, outside the polling place in a way that it's simply impossible to completely verify. Now, there, there are methods of verifying signatures, for example. Uh, and, and, and But, you know, there, there are some, un, you know, some risks that you simply can have with mail-in ballots that you can never entirely trace. But the problem with that systemically is, you know, you can't, you can't overturn an election simply by saying, well, there's this thing that might have happened that nobody can prove. Right. I, I, and it does seem to be a strategic error, I think, looking back by the Trump campaign to essentially convince a bunch of their voters that may have wanted to vote by mail that it was so corrupt that your vote wasn't going to count. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen in, in my lifetime, I can ever remember a candidate encouraging his own voters not to get their vote in. Uh, it really was a strange choice. And I think it may have really hurt in some of these close states. It is possible. I mean, the Georgia Secretary of State was talking about that, about the number of voters who voted in the president in the uh, in the state's primary in June. Uh, it's like 45,000 voters or something like that who didn't vote in the general election. Now, of course, some of those 
you know, some of those folks died. Some of them probably moved out of state. You know, there's always a certain number of those. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, I think people that weren't initially thinking in those terms on Election Day because everybody was shocked by quite how many vote, voters came out. Uh, I mean, the vote, the turnout was so high on both sides. Uh, lots of Republicans and lots of Democrats came out of the woodwork to vote. Uh, but, you know, in states like, like Georgia and Arizona that were very close, uh, where you may have had a lot of, you know, older voters, perhaps, who, who might otherwise have come out and voted Republican. You know, if you miss 10,000 voters, well, that's the difference. Hmm. Um, you went over an interesting claim that I have seen circulated relatively widely that says it's just a, it's an order, there's a, a series of these arguments about just the plausibility of the results. Like, th- could this possibly happen at the same time this has happened? Here's, here's this one, and I think it's pretty interesting. Um, Trump won the largest non-white vote share for a Republican presidential candidate in 60 years. Biden underperformed Hillary Clinton in every major metro area around the country, save for Milwaukee, Detroit, Atlanta, and Philadelphia. I mean, that just hearing that on its surface is pretty convincing. What's the truth about it? Yeah, that's not true at all. It's, I mean, then that claim was going around the web and I saw it in a lot of places. That's why I wrote about it. Um, I, I took a look at 36, the 36 biggest uh, cities, and, and I looked this at the county level results. Obviously, counties don't always match up entirely with the city. And when you talk about metro areas, it includes the suburbs. Uh, and actually, frankly, I think what decided this election was was how well Biden did relative to Trump in the suburbs, including in some suburbs that Trump had done pretty well in four years ago. Um, but, you know, I looked at 36, 36 cities. I cut out there were like four cities that Trump had either won or narrowly lost. I left aside all the cities in California and New York because they're still counting their votes so slowly you can't even compare them. <laughs> it's amazing. So. Yeah, and I looked at the other 36 cities, and in fact, Biden overperformed Hillary in 31 out of 36, and one of the five he didn't was Philadelphia. Uh, and if you look at Milwaukee and Detroit, they're pretty low down the list. I mean, Trump was the first Republican since 1988 to clear 30% of the vote in Detroit. So all things considered, he, you know, for what you would expect, uh, things went went pretty well in Detroit uh, for, for um, from a Republican perspective. Now, Atlanta... Biden did extremely well there. He did extremely well in the Atlanta suburbs. Uh, you know, he did very well in, in Maricopa County, which contains both Phoenix and Mesa. Uh, so there are certainly some cities where he did uh, unusually well. But then you look at there are a bunch of other cities he did unusually well in Portland and Seattle and places that were not swing state cities. Um, so I think the, the idea that Biden's performance in the cities in and of itself is suspicious it just doesn't hold water and you know the places that where he has really stunning success is in the suburbs where you know typically there the election systems are maybe not as much in control of some democratic party machine all right before you go uh, one more here for you and and you know we look around this uh, obviously i think we would agree that we want to make sure the votes are counted correctly and if there is fraud it should be of course rooted out um, but as you look at the landscape here of the ongoing legal questions, uh, including Pennsylvania and Michigan, is there anything on the scale needed to actually turn over the result of this election from what, where the AP and everybody else says it is right now? Yeah, I would say no. I mean, there are things out there that are sort of long shot theories, I guess. But but realistically, there's there's no prospect that Trump's going to get the result overturned in Michigan. Uh, the the 
margin is such in Pennsylvania that there's no real prospect there. Uh, and, you know, if you don't get Michigan and Pennsylvania at this point, given what else you've got on the board, uh, you're just not going to do it. So, you know, I think the process, as the process continues, there may still be things that, that get uncovered that you can point to and say, well, these were some real problems. And there are some things that you can look at and say, well, let's think about this before we allow mail balloting again. But, uh, you know, I think if you're taking a realistic look at where things stand in the courts, you, you have to say that, that Trump is not going to be able to change the outcome. Let me correct myself one more question here before you leave, Dan. I appreciate you taking the time today. There have been a few of these stories that have turned out. You mentioned Antrim County, where several thousand votes had to be switched. There was a story in uh, Georgia where they seem to have found 2,600 votes that uh, and had to recount them. It benefited Trump by about 800 votes in the end. Uh, you know, there was another one where they double counted. Uh, is is a, is a is a couple thousand votes here and there. Is this a common thing from election to election that we just don't hear about because the the results aren't questioned? Or is this I mean, this does seem like there's several uh, large batches of votes that are that have had major problems like this, although they have been caught. That does, does need to be say, said. Yeah. And I think a couple thousand additional votes just turned up in Philadelphia, too. That wasn't in a recounting process because they're still counting, uh, although I think they're almost done. Um, you know, when you look real close at these things, turning up, you know, some ballots, a couple hundred ballots, uh, that, that uh, most elections are not quite as precise as we think of them. Mm. And so when you're talking about a very small margin, yes, it does happen. Uh, I think discovering a couple thousand votes that didn't get counted is that's in the, by the standards of most recounts, that's pretty big. Uh, that's bigger than you expect to see. And, and it's maybe not shocking given the uh, highly unusual conditions in which everything happened this year. Um, so, you know, I think I think for public confidence in the result, it is important to, you know, to have the recount in Georgia, to have uh, continuing pressure in, in the courts to make sure that, that everything has been done properly. Uh, and so, I, you know, I don't think that's that's really a problem. I do think that that, um, you know, retailing theories that there are massive conspiracies and that the election is going to come out differently than what we're all seeing. I think that's where you get, you know, much more irresponsible things. And frankly, I think the president's rhetoric has not done his lawyers any good either. I mean, I think the more he kind of pounds the table, the more I think the courts take a harder and more skeptical look at what his lawyers are saying. Mm, interesting. Well, I mean, I think it's really important for everybody uh, to look at not just what's on the, on the Internet, but what's going on in the court and try to sort that all out. Dan McLaughlin did a great piece. Uh, no, Joe Biden did not only improve in four major swing state cities. Uh, it's I think it benefits the entire process when we get rid of the stuff that isn't true and focus on the stuff that is. Dan McLaughlin, National Review, thanks so much for coming on the program. I appreciate it. Thanks. Back in a second. Release the Kraken! I just, I'm obsessed with releasing the Kraken at this point. Uh, release the Kraken is the catchphrase uh, that apparently now is, is becoming an internet sensation. Now, to take it back on this one, Sidney Powell, one of the uh, president's attorneys, said this in an interview, I think on Fox Business, where she said, look, we haven't told you all the stuff that we have yet, and when we do, you're going to see that it's a big deal. We're going to release the Kraken. All right. 
Release the Kraken. Now, I will say, I, I've heard people say Release the Kraken before. I couldn't remember where it was from or where I had heard it. And I've now done the work that you pay me to do, or at least you pay the network to, and then they pay me or you visit our sponsors or whatever you do to keep this show in business. And we thank you for that, by the way. Apparently it goes back to the 2010 movie Clash of the Titans. Now, I don't even remember this movie coming out, to be honest with you. Apparently when it did come out, they released a teaser uh, of this particular movie. And in the middle, uh, Liam, Liam Neeson says, release the Kraken. Now, as of course, you probably know, it's a remake of a 1981 movie. Of course, Clash of the Titans, except with a lot of really expensive special effects, big budget, uh, and apparently was not very good. I am now obsessed with this movie. I need to see it. This needs to be something I do this weekend. I need to just sit down and watch this movie because I must see them release the Kraken. Uh, but I will say, it looks like they spent a zillion dollars on this movie. I keep asking people, like, it can't be that bad, can it? And they say, yes. Yes, it can be. Uh, apparently it is. But I'm going to watch it with those eyes this weekend. I will report to you uh, next week and let you know how this, this movie from 2010 is. Maybe it's really good. Um, but apparently, Sidney Powell is trying to now find voter fraud. She says she's going to come out with it. Now, we've seen promises like this before. We obviously talked about this with Dan earlier on the show. One of the issues is um, a lot of these big claims from people like, you know, Rudy Giuliani and the president and Sidney Powell so far have not come to fruition. We'll see if this is a, a real example of voter fraud or if it's something that, you know, maybe doesn't quite cross that line. I know they're trying everything they can to try to make sure the, the president gets four more years. We'll see if they're successful. As you probably know, we have about I mean, the the electors are December 14th, I think it is. So you got about a month. Uh, in total time, probably a little bit less than that. I do think there's a little bit of um, fatigue going on right now. I mean, I, I've talked to a bunch of people who big Trump supporters really excited for uh, the election. And when the, it didn't you know, come out on uh, election night the way they were hoping, we're very big on, you know, let's make sure we get all these votes counted. And there's been a little bit, I've noticed a little bit of a fade in, in sort of energy when it comes to that uh, cause. We'll see if this continues. But I do think if the president has something, if, if, if Sidney Powell has something, if Rudy Giuliani has something, really they got to get this out soon or the American people are going to uh, gonna start to fade. I mean, we have very short attention spans here. Uh, I mean, you know, there's only, they limit characters on Twitter for a reason. Um, there is some voter fraud we've caught, and this is incontrovertible. Um, observers uh, uncovered incontrovertible evidence of voter fraud. These findings rocked the world, causing an upset in the results of the 2020's biggest leadership race and raising awareness of just how fragile our institutions truly are. We are, of course, talking about the most important electoral contest of our era, New Zealand's Bird of the Year. In a statement from organizer Forrest and Bird, we learned that the little spotted Kiwi was formerly holding the lead in the nation's Bird of the Year of balloting. The data scientists who monitored these elections noticed, however, that more than 1,500 of the uh, little spotted Kiwis votes had been cast within two hours from the same IP address in the middle of the night. Fraud! We're talking about fraud, people. The little spotted Kiwi is a trash bird and will never win that election. We hold everyone in New Zealand responsible. Down with the bird. I say execute all little spotted kiwis. I hope you do too. Uh, and one other thing I want to actually talk about. This is a, another thing making the rounds on the interwebs, the inner tubes. Uh, it is this uh, South Dakota nurse. 
that was on CNN. I want you to watch this clip. You said that even now that the, the hospital is being overrun with COVID patients. They come in. They're horribly ill. They're gasping for breath. And yet they don't believe they have COVID. Yeah, I think the hardest thing to watch is that people are still looking for something else and they want a magic answer and they don't want to believe that COVID is real. And the reason I tweeted what I did is it wasn't one particular patient. It's just a culmination of so many people. And their last dying words are, um, this can't be happening. It's not real. And when they should be spending time FaceTiming their families, they're filled with anger and hatred. And it just made me really sad the other night. And um, I just can't believe that those are going to be their last thoughts and words. Uh, you know, look, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure this has happened. Uh, you know, people who are skeptical of coronavirus also can die of coronavirus. Uh, we do know uh, that it is real. And we talked to Janice Dean just the other day. Two of her relatives died of uh, of coronavirus. We know, you know hundreds of thousands have and it sucks. So there are some people who are completely in denial that anyone's ever died of this. I understand that. And perhaps this has happened. But, you know, what really I want to focus on here is how much the media freaking loves this story. They love it. Every time they can find somebody who is skeptical of COVID, that dies of COVID, they get to write a whole little story about it. Times has done it. The Post has done it. You know, the Times had this this guy who was uh, who was a New Jersey bar owner. I think it was New Jersey. And he went on a cruise and they said he got coronavirus on the cruise. But, you know, then you looked at the story and like there was no actual evidence that he had got coronavirus on the cruise. And the fact that he was a Trump supporter and uh, didn't think coronavirus was as big a deal as some others did. That's like a, a highlight to the media. You know, they, they love this narrative that uh, they can say people who voted for Donald Trump die of coronavirus, too. And look, it's really gross. It's really gross. You know, even if. Even if the, the biggest denier in the world, a person who is absolutely convinced it's a complete hoax, it's from 5G or whatever these theories are, if they come in there, they should get the same sympathies that someone who has been taking it seriously from day one might get. This is not, this is, you know, I understand why as a nurse you would feel the need to tell that story. I don't understand why you'd be put on national TV to tell that story. You know, look. It's just it's just a gross, a gross media trope that they keep trotting out over and over and over and over and over again. And I I don't know. It's kind of disgusting to me. I thought I'd say that back in a second. Let's say you wanted to illicitly stream um, Clash of the Titans from 2010 and you didn't want anyone to know you were doing it. You need ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN, uh, when it's on your device, it hides your IP address, which websites can use to personally identify you. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and prying eyes. Now, many VPNs slow down your internet. If you've ever tried a VPN, if you're not some computer scientist, a lot of them are really difficult to use, and a lot of them make your, your device run like trash. That's not ExpressVPN. It's easy to use, and it's fast. You tap one button, and you're protected, and you're protected from all the weird prying eyes and people who will judge you from watching a Liam Neeson movie from 2010. 
If you don't like the idea of tech companies exploiting your personal information, visit expressvpn.com slash stew right now. You can get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free. It's expressvpn.com slash stew to protect your data. Don't forget the slash stew part because obviously that's how they know you like this stupid show. Expressvpn.com slash stew to learn more. Colin Kaepernick is back in the news, and this time not for throwing yet another interception. Uh, you know, he doesn't play, so he can't throw interceptions anymore. He's thrown none for multiple years. Does any other quarterback have that record? No. Okay. Uh, but Kaepernick is known for being a terrible quarterback and also for being very dumb. And he was talking about Mumia Abu-Jamal. This is a story that has been going on for a long, long time in Philadelphia. Now, we used to do the show right outside of Philadelphia, and did dozens of shows on Mumia Abu-Jamal and his murder of uh, Faulkner, Officer Faulkner, uh, in a case that is not any sensible person would not debate. It was a guy murdering a cop. It was blatant. The facts are incredibly clear on this. Uh, I'm not going to rehash them all in the minute or so I have left here, but maybe at some point if this continues to pick up steam, we'll go back through it again. It's, It's not true. Uh, that uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal should be freed. However, that's the new cause of, uh, of apparently Colin Kaepernick. Kaepernick is now saying we should free M- uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, it's not a surprise. It's been, he's, he's about two decades late to this party, uh, but it's been something that's been thrown around on the very far left for a long time. If I'm not mistaken, I believe Mumia Abu-Jamal, I can't try to think if it was him or it was uh, Peltier, who ran, actually ran as... A, uh, like a candidate on like one of the socialist party tickets for president. It might have been Pelletier. Anyway, the bottom line is you shouldn't kill police officers. And uh, Colin Kaepernick, who wore socks about how police officers are pigs, we all know that. Um, he uh, is going down this road, and it's a terrible road. I will say, you know, look, some racist incidents need to be looked at. It's true. A uh, guy who owned a BMW uh, had his BMW spray-painted with racist and homophobic graffiti. Uh, swastikas, the N-word, KKK, and profanity against Black Lives Matter were on the car. Sugar was poured into the gas tank. And, of course, as you'd expect, a message of support for President Donald Trump was on the car. A uh, guy who did it got uh, Class D felony, uh, Class A felony another class A felony and another class A felony. Um, I should uh, include the fact that the guy who did it was the guy who owned the car. And he called police after he spray painted his own car. Black guy spray painted all that stuff on his own, his own car. He's got insurance fraud, offering a false instrument for filing a second degree, uh, falsifying business records, and uh, falsely reporting an incident in third degree, another class A misdemeanor but racism does exist it just doesn't exist wherever colin kaepernick says it does as we age you can start to see it in your face and feel it in your bones true niagen helps us age better by supporting the energy generating engines that exist in our bodies helping us restore youthful energy Tiny repair enzymes that work deep in your cells to help you recover from lifestyle routines that are hard on your body. That's what Trunigen does. Trunigen supports these enzymes. Trunigen is safety tested and backed by Nobel Prize winning scientists. You can age smarter with Trunigen. Right now, new customers can save $20 on a three-month supply by going to trunigen.com slash stew. T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N dot com slash stew. 
The slash stew part of the address is important because that's how they know you like this stupid show. TrueNiagen.com slash stew. We got to age. We all got to do it. But you can do it gracefully. True Niagen. Sell health powers your health. Do it now. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know, as I go through this election and all the stuff going on with the challenges, I think to myself, you know what? If I'm surprised on the positive, fantastic. I'm going to plan for the worst, not expect the best. Expect the best happens. I mean, wonderful, right? We'll all celebrate. Well, I can tell you this. Make sure uh, you tell people if we've learned anything through this election, make sure you learn something before you go out and cast your vote. Learn, then vote. Learn, then vote. The order is important. Go to learnthenvote.com for any of your dumb friends.